Good morning, Restoration Church. You all are a tough crowd. I thought that Pastor Nathan's joke about me being a guest with the last name of guest would go over well with you all here. <laughs> I bring to you greetings, as Pastor Nathan said, from Jubilee Community Church. My wife and I, Pastor Toph, we count it a joy and a privilege to be with you all worshiping together with people that we count brothers and sisters. This is our first time meeting so many of you all, and yet know by God's grace we'll be spending eternity together. So, Pastor Nathan, thank you so much for inviting us. And Pastor Joey, I don't know if he's here. Uh, Ralph, thank you so much for, for having us, and it's our joy to worship together. Can we pray one more time and then jump into God's word here together? Father, we have sung praises to your name, sought to worship you not only in the way that we sing, but even in greeting one another and even in prayer. Now, Father, I pray that you will grant us much grace by your spirit to worship over your word. Father, to find ourselves sitting underneath your word, telling us the way that we should go, a word coming from our king. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see wonderful things out of your word today. Would you grant us much grace by the power of the spirit to see the glory of Christ? And in seeing the glory of Jesus, Father, would we be transformed one degree of glory to the next? Father, you know how every heart has walked into this room this morning. You know the level of help that is needed. Father, I call upon your Holy Spirit to help us. Would your word do work and bring forth fruit today? Would it call? Would it convict? Would it encourage? Would it exhort? Would you call people to faith, Father, who need to come to your son? And would you encourage the body of Christ? We give you glory for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. It's very interesting how Luke sets his story up and goes about his writing object to Theophilus. As you all have been traveling through the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually does us a solid by telling us right in the front end what he would have Theophilus to know and what his purpose in writing to Theophilus was. So if I could take you back for a little bit, remember what you read and what you were taught in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke wrote in such a way so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he was taught. You remember that when you were in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He talked about the way that he wrote in such a way, being one who is historically connected to the things that have gone on before him, so that Theophilus would be certain concerning the things that he was, what he was taught. The gift of certainty is one of those gifts that just keep on giving, right? Every season in your life presents circumstances, it presents events, it presents challenges, brazen challenges, that challenges this, this certainty that we have every season, every season that we go through, right? So if you were tasked as Luke to bring about certainty, to help your brother Theophilus be certain concerning the things that he would taught, how would you do it? How would you go about this task? Well, it's interesting to consider how Luke did it. What Luke did for Theophilus is the same that he, thing that he does for us today. He told Theophilus a story. In fact, Luke masterfully wielded in his hands one of the most powerful tools, story, that constructs certainty. In telling this story, he put Theophilus into the know about how his life fit into that particular story. Here's how one writer described what story does. He says, story is like, a, is like gravity. It's an inescapable force field that influences everything. Story has the ability, the unique ability, to express truth that in turn fortifies certainty. Luke embedded his story, the story of Jesus Christ, 
in a larger story that the scriptures tell, a much grander story, a greater story, as it were. We know that the story of the scriptures tell us about creation, and then it tells us about the fall. It tells us about redemption, and it tells us about consummation. Well, one person summarized this story well, this greatest story of all time well, by saying of it that this story tells of a beautiful world that is so broken, but it will not always be so. Is that good news to anybody's soul this morning? To know that you are living in a world that is, yes, beautiful, but yes, also so broken, but also, yes, a world that will not be so in the end. The story that Luke tells concerning this gospel is the climax of this larger story. In other words, it's the turning point from the beautiful world that is so broken, turning point into it will not always be so. Why will it not always be so? Why will this world move from its brokenness to a world of holiness? The answer is because of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the turning point of the story. He is the sole reason why we will get to how every good story ends and they lived happily ever after. It's because of Jesus who does this. He's the turning point. Our text this morning is also a turning point in the story. If you consider where we've been so far or where you've been so far in this gospel, geographic locations can help us pinpoint where we are in this particular story. If you were to place a map on top of this gospel, once we get through chapters one to three that introduces us to Jesus, in chapter four, after the temptation story, Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. If you have a picture in your mind of the land of Israel, Galilee is in the north. Last week, Pastor Nathan walked you all through a pivotal moment, probably the pivotal moment in that section, namely the transfiguration of Jesus. As Pastor Nathan one that we preached, it was on that mountain of transfiguration where the curtain was pulled back for a little bit and glory was seen. This curtain was pulled back and for a second what was unveiled was the glory of Jesus Christ. And not only the glory of Jesus Christ, but also what was unveiled was this intricate part of a plan that chapters one through three unpacked in Luke's gospel. Do you remember and recall what the angel told Mary in chapter one? He said to her that the son that she was about to have would be great. He said to her that his kingly greatness and his kingdom reign would have no end. This path of greatness, though, must travel through the surprising road of his departure, which the scripture, which Luke stunningly called Jesus's exodus. It's a good time. It's a good use of your time to meditate on the depths of what it means for the salvation event, the salvation event of the Old Testament to be connected to Jesus and for him to call it his exodus. What it means for his exodus to go through his death and his burial, his resurrection and his ascension. You learned last week that Jesus's exodus is location bound. It will be fulfilled in Jerusalem with this pronouncement. The story now, where we are this morning, now turns and leaves Galilee and heads south, but it must pass through Samaria first. So started in chapter 9, verse number 51, the next part of the story, this section that you all are about to embark upon for the next 10 chapters is something that's unique to Luke's gospel. 
In other words, the things that you all are about to read over the next 10 chapters are things that you will only find in the Gospel of Luke. This next section has been called a travel narrative. And to put even a further, a further banner over it, this travel narrative has been described as Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. It covers about 38% of the gospel, and it goes up to chapter 19, verse number 27. As Pastor Nathan said last, last week, we must pay close attention to the story when the story slows down the way it's about to slow down for you. When, when, when you get to a point in the scriptures where the story drastically slows down, it calls us to pay close attention to what is about to be said. Think about what Mark's gospel does in this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. He takes one chapter to unpack what's going on between Galilee and to Jerusalem. Luke takes 10, 10 chapters to get ourselves from northern Israel and Galilee through Samaria down to Jerusalem. In these 10 chapters, what you'll see over and over is a major theme that has pertinent, pertinent news for us today as disciples of Christ. This main theme that you'll see in these 10 chapters is on the theme of discipleship. Think back to last week. Do you remember the one imperative that Peter, James, and John heard on the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you remember what was said to them? Once that voice came from the cloud, shook them to their souls, that voice said to them, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Our section this morning gives us our first lesson on the road to Jerusalem, that followers of Jesus must listen to about discipleship. The big idea that the text calls us to consider this morning is that there is an awareness of the cost of discipleship. There's an awareness of the cost of discipleship that is essential for discipleship. That's our big idea that we want to walk away from. An awareness of the cost of discipleship that is essential for discipleship. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, do you know how much it costs? <laughs> Turn to your other neighbor to the other side and ask them, is the cost outside of your price range. <laughs> you don't walk away with anything this morning. This text is calling us to be aware of the cost that's connected to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you three headings that will chart our way forward. Heading number one, this way. This way. Heading number two, this is not the way. This is not the way. And then heading number three, this is the way. Let's think about this first one, this way. Here in chapter 9, verse number 51 through 52, we read how the story is now going to turn from Galilee over into Samaria. It goes like this. When the days drew near from him to be taken up, his ascension, speaking of here, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of them who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Luke gives an expression to describe Jesus' action. He says he set his face towards and to go to Jerusalem. 
as a daughter of, as a father of two daughters, a, a word that I've had to add to my vocabulary is the word cute, right? There's a cute video of some kids on, on, on the internet trying to explain what various idioms or various expressions mean. They had to unpack what it means when somebody says, that's going to cost you an arm or a leg. One child said that it might literally cost you an arm or a leg for something, right? You had to unpack the expression, it's raining cats and dogs. For all of my children in here, I want you to think about this expression and think about what it might mean when somebody says, he set his face. What would it mean if someone said that she set her face to kick the ball really hard? Or... He set his face to work hard at getting good grades. What is, this, what is this expression supposed to convey to our understanding and to our thoughts? To set one's face is an expression of determination. It, it, speaks, one, it speaks to a firm, unshakable resolve to do something. To set one's face means that no one or no thing will get in the way of what you have planned to do. So with that in mind, Luke describes Jesus as an unwaveringly determined individual to get to Jerusalem. This is the first of many times in this 10 chapter section that Luke writes about this journey to Jerusalem. Consider chapter 13, verse number 22. It says, he went his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Chapter 17, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Chapter 18, verse 31, see, this is Jesus talking, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In chapter 19, verse number 11, as they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. He turns around and he explains this parable. And as soon as he is done with the parable, as if they forgot where they were going, he said to them again in verse number 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is not a, a man on a quest with no destination. We, we see a man on a mission here going forward in one direction, hand to the plow, without one single glance backward, leaning his disciples by saying, this way, this is the way that we're going. This is where we're heading. We're going to Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark and Luke depict this determined and this resolute son of man. In Matthew, we hear the firmness inherent in the word must Matthew writes to us that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. In Mark, this imperatival must is illustrated for us in the story where Mark writes, and when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of his disciples. So much so, he was so resolute, so firm, so much in the, in the front saying, this is the way that we're going. So much so that the disciples actually were afraid. They were in awe at such determination to get to Jerusalem. They couldn't understand why this man was going with such full force ahead, steam ahead to get to his path. They should have understood because Jesus told them three times what awaited them at the end of their journey to Jerusalem. You can capture it in these ways. Jesus, what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem? Listen to how 
Christ describes it. He says of Jesus, he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, rejected, and killed despite his innocence. Would that not put you in awe of someone who is going with such determination to this particular end? I missed an essential item on the to-do list while Jesus is in Jerusalem. Not only will these horrific things happen to Jesus, but this emphatic must go to Jerusalem is matched. Better yet, it's surpassed by the divine necessity of on the third day, he will rise. He will rise. I realize that I'm going to have to come back here to D.C. not only to worship together with, with you brothers and sisters here at Restoration Church, but I'm eager to see the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I read, I read somewhere that Kobe Bryant's 2008 NBA Finals jersey is in the collection there. As this world mourned Kobe's death here recently, there was one phrase that continuously came up when people talked about Kobe. They talked about the Mamba mentality. This dogged focus of bettering yourself. Everybody talked about it, the mama mentality, the mamba mentality. Now this mentality, as inspiring as it might be for some folks, I like to call it the baby mama mentality. There's never been a determined focus like the one Jesus had on the way to Jerusalem. Never. If you were to put Jesus' determination all the way to Jerusalem up against Kobe's mama mentality, you wouldn't even be able to compare the two. I read a story one time of a jewelry owner who, who helped out her parents' jewelry store by um, writing the tags of the prices on the jewelry that's displayed. While working there, she followed one of her parents' tactics when she had her own jewelry store. This tactic that she continued from her parents was to take the price tag that was connected to the jewelry and to either turn it upside down so that you couldn't see it or tuck it away so that you couldn't see the price of the particular jewelry that you are, are looking at. What she knew, uh, in essence, in hiding the price of the jewelry, what she knew is that high price tags kind of spook people. Have you ever thought about it? You go inside of a store and you're looking at something and you turn the tag over and you say, oh, oh. And then you put it back. You said, not today, not today. We're not going to get that today. For the high-end items in her shop, somebody had to ask her what the price tag was. Consider this. If Jesus were the owner of this jewelry shop, and you walked in, and you lost your breath looking at the display at this dazzling piece of jewelry called discipleship, you asked him what was the price of this jewel, he would turn the tag over and you would see a picture of Jesus Christ on that tag. Jesus sets the example for us of costly discipleship as he set his face like Flint, solidly determined not to look back and said this way, this way to Jerusalem, this way to my death, this way to my burial, this way to my resurrection, and this way to my ascension. My encouragement to us all this morning, as Pastor Nathan said last week, is to give the eyes of your heart 
no rest until you see the glory of your Savior, your determined Savior who goes before you. Give the taste buds of your soul no slumber until you savor the beauty of the one who is illustrated for us in this determination who illustrates Isaiah 54 verses 7. Isaiah 54 verses 7 of Christ says, The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain a word of him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my, eye, my ear to hear as those who were taught. The Lord God has opened my, my way, my eyes, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Since I gave my back to those who struck, who struck and my cheek to those who poured out, pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. As you heard last week, I want to say again to you this week, this is my son, this voice declared from the cloud. My chosen one, listen, listen to him. See in him this stark determination that points us forward to the cost of discipleship. Now, James and John, the sons of thunder, was about to get an exceptional opportunity to listen to Jesus tell them that this is not the way. Consider verses 53 through 56. 53 through 56 shows how Jesus clarifies for us what costly discipleship is not. We pick up the story waiting to hear what happens when Jesus sends his advance team to a village of the Samaritans. Verse 53 says that, says that, says something that we might consider to be actually unthinkable. Verse 53 says, but the people did not receive him. The people didn't receive Jesus. Another way of, of saying that and to make it land home is that the people did not welcome Jesus as a guest in their village. One translation of this verse even goes further. It says the people refused hospitality towards Jesus. They refused it. I had a privilege this last November with a fellow elder of mine to go over to Pakistan. And I can't tell you the level of reception that we see we received in Pakistan. Every house we went into, there was a cup of chai waiting for us, chai latte. If we went to five houses that day, that was five cups of chai by the end of the day for me, right? So much chai, I've had chai since I got back from Pakistan at this point. <laughs> Every church that we went to, the reception, we were met with the reception of a bouquet of flowers that they put around our necks as they welcomed us into their assembly. So much so that in one church, they put four bouquets of flowers. I almost felt bent down because I had all of these roses on my chest. What level of hospitality that we received when we were spending time with these brothers and sisters in Pakistan? Suffice it to say that my elder and I are not Jesus. They rejected him. They refused to practice hospitality. Now, while the Samaritan village's lack of hospitality might surprise us, you've seen a picture of this rejection already in Luke's story, right? Jesus' time in Galilee started off with rejection. In Jerusalem, he will be rejected. Now, while Luke portrays the Samaritans in a positive light in his gospel, here he shows that they join in with Galilee and they join in with Jerusalem 
to reject Christ. Every step of the way in Luke's gospel, the story illustrates Isaiah, the truth of Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and he was rejected by all humanity of all stripes. This morning, grace turns our hearts to sing to the Lord and of his praise because we know that apart from the kindness of God, we would have rejected him also. But in the story of the gospel, in Luke's gospel, every step of the way, Galilee, Samaria, Jerusalem, rejected Jesus when he came to them. Our text gives us the reason why the Samaritans rejected Christ. It says, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. I think an important detail to know about Jews and the Samaritans is that no one has ever accused them of having warm and fuzzy feelings towards one another. In fact, there was a growing animosity between these two groups that started all the way back to when the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. It was exasperated further when the northern kingdom experienced exile in 722 B.C. See, what happened in, during that exile is that a, a remnant of Jews were left behind and the land was repopulated with other people who were not Jews, other Gentiles from other lands. And these Jews and these Gentiles started to mix together. And as a result, the Jews of that day considered the Samaritans to be idolatrous and unclean because of intermarriage. The Samaritans, on the other hand, were no innocent bystanders. They chose a different place of worship than Jerusalem. And if history is correct, there is one occurrence where a group of Galileans were traveling through Samaria and ended up being slaughtered on their way to Jerusalem because of the animosity that was so thick. There's a hatred between these two people groups in the Gospels. And while that doesn't excuse their rejection of Christ, it may explain why they told Jesus to talk to the hand. Good stories, good stories though. Good stories have that moment when the tension rises as it moves towards the climax when the story will turn either one way or the other. And in this part of the story, we have arrived at such a tension in verse number 54. What will be the consequences of such an action? What will happen as a result of this rejection of Jesus Christ? What will Jesus do, in other words? How will he respond? Well, we know how James and John responded, or were wanted to respond. They were called the sons of thunder, probably due to their fiery nature. And they said, Lord, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? What an interesting thing to say. I chuckle at it sometimes because apparently they thought that Jesus couldn't call the fire down from heaven by himself. <laughs> and the absolute gall, the audacity of the, of the question, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? This is, a, this is, this is ludicrous. Right? Most commentaries will link this question, though, back to the story of Elijah in, first, in 2 Kings chapter 1, where he called down fire from heaven to consume 102 men. The Jew-Samaritan animosity may fuel this request, this request of saying, Lord, do you want us to call fire down? Or it could be in response to actually what they saw last week in the first part of chapter 9. You remember, James and John were also on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw who the Samaritans were rejecting. They saw 
the light coming off of Christ's clothes. They saw the, the changing of this man's face. They saw it. And I wonder that was something that rose up in there saying, you're going to reject him? Maybe that might have been the case. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? In reality, what we see is that what they asked for is an eternal consequence of rejecting Jesus, right? There are eternal consequences for rejecting the one whose face was altered and whose clothing became dazzling white. Make no mistake, judgment is what happens for those who reject Jesus. Psalm 2 speaks about the Lord and his anointed son who is Jesus. I want you to pay close attention to the advice of what Psalm 2 gives us. Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with, with trembling. Kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. If we were to go to the end of the book, end of the, the Bible, into Revelation, we see what happens with those who reject the Christ. This judgment for rejection that James and John wanted to call down was not wrong in its appropriateness. Consider John 3.36, the clarion call of the gospel is that whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the question remains, what will Jesus do? Now, with this request, this seemingly right request of judgment for rejection, will Jesus take James and John's suggestion? Will he follow them up? Our text says no, he doesn't do this. He rebukes his disciples. Well, why did he rebuke them? Their judgment for rejection was not wrong. What was wrong with their request? I think what was wrong with the request was their timing of it. It was not the day of judgment for the village that rejected Jesus. You remember how Jesus started his ministry in Luke chapter 4? In Luke 4 it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This favor is captured well in Luke 19, verse 10, which might be the banner that flies over this whole gospel. Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He was on his way to Jerusalem to save the lost. He did not come the first time to judge. Hence, the right rebuke of Jesus to James and John. This is not the way. This is not the way disciples act. Costly discipleship is not premature judgment or it's not inappropriate use of power. Costly discipleship loves enemies and does good to those who hate them. On a side note, fire did eventually fall in Samaria, right? In Acts chapter 8, when Philip came to preach the gospel, this same area that rejected Christ received Christ with joy. 
And Peter and John heard about it, this same John, and they came down to Samaria and prayed that the Holy Spirit would fall upon the Samaritans. What a turn of events, right? Imagine if Jesus acquiesced to their request. As we were driving back from the conference this past Friday, I was reminded of my appreciation for the gentle rebuke of the, map, the Apple Maps app on my phone. Gentle rebuke. What in the world did we do before the map app? And, and how will I ever live life now without it at this point? Whenever I made, or whenever we made a wrong turn, it was comforting to me that, that Siri didn't yell at me, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. It was quite comforting that she gave a gentle rebuke. She silently just rerouted and told us to go in a different direction. Even in her silence, though, she was telling me that I was going the wrong direction. She was saying to me, this is not the way. Jesus, very tempted to call him the greater Siri, Jesus <laughs> clarifies for us what costly discipleship is not. He reroutes our path when as disciples we are not acting like our Lord. Brothers and sisters, what would this morning Jesus lovingly rebuke you about your discipleship this morning? Where would he look at your life as one of his followers and say to you, as your, as your Lord, this is not the way? Have you been judgmental this week? Has anger consumed you this week? Has anxiety and frustration taken up your week? Where would the Lord call you to consider his voice telling you this morning, this is not the way? I'm glad to tell you that as you consider that thought, we have a throne of mercy to approach. A throne of grace where mercy is available and grace is help in time of need. That does my soul well this morning. So this morning, let us walk in repentance and belief and freshly give ourselves to what costly discipleship is and what costly discipleship is not. Let's freshly give ourselves to Jesus for him to tell us as our Lord where we are not walking as we should be walking and saying to us, child, my child, this is not the way. To those who are in here and you are not a follower of Christ, you aren't a Christian. Jesus is speaking to you also. And I implore you to listen to Christ this morning. Listen to the one who says to you in your rebellion and in your rejection today that this is also not the way. I also have good news for you, friend. If you are listening to me talk this morning, if you are hearing words coming out of my mouth, if you are breathing at this moment, this is not your day of judgment. You have an opportunity right now, at this moment, to listen to the one who's telling you this is not the way. To listen to Christ and to be reconciled to God through him. I encourage you to do it at this very moment. Or if somebody brought you here, talk to them. Or talk to me after the service. Or talk to the pastors and ask them what it means to listen to this this Christ 
who cares so much about you. I mentioned earlier about hospitality, the great hospitality that we experienced in Pakistan. And I was reminded of the great hospitality that Chris and his family, Felicity, have, have showered upon us while we were been here in D.C. It has been a, a deep delight and a great joy to live in the house for a couple of days with such a Star Wars fan that has such a collection as Chris has. I weep with Chris over the broken Lego Millennial Falcon in the room. And I rejoice with you, brother, as we are one day closer to the season two of The Mandalorian. <laughs> in The Mandalorian, a new Star Wars mantra was birthed, and it actually may come to rival one day the phrase, may the force be with you. That mantra is, this is the way. It is a saying that captures the code that the Mandalorians lived by. Not only does Jesus clarify for us as disciples what discipleship is not, but he also illustrates for us what costly discipleship is. In other words, Jesus is the one that says to us, this is the way. So consider verses 15, 57 to 62. 57 to 62, we find our story back on the road where Jesus interacted with three would-be disciples using three examples of imagery. Look at verse number 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever, wherever you go. Whoever this person was, he was quite confident of his commitment and his resolve. Wherever you go, I will follow you. How many of y'all know that you should be weary? You should be leery of absolute statements like this. We know what happened to the apostle Peter. Lord, even if all of them should fall away from you, I will not fall. In the face of such resolve, Jesus answered this would-be disciple with striking imagery. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the hair have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To understand this, I want you to think about what just happened in Samaria. Think rejection. Foxes have a place to call a home. Birds have a place to be welcomed back to. But Jesus has no place. I like how one commentator put it. He says this. He says, in his wandering, Jesus is wandering from place to place. He, from whom there was no room in the inn, had no place on which he could rest his head. No place on which he could spend the night. As the story developed, Judea rejects him. Galilee casts him out. Gadara begs him to leave his districts. Samaria refuses him lodging. The earth will not have him. And finally, even heaven forsakes him. And this person's readiness, this would-be disciple, and his readiness to follow Jesus wherever, without having an awareness of costly discipleship, Jesus illustrated that his path and that his disciples' path after him is a steep path of suffering and rejection. Now, we don't have to like that reality, but we must know it. Jesus' followers have no place at all to lay their heads in this world as if this world is our home. We, like him, are strangers. We're exiles on this earth seeking a homeland, seeking a better country, desiring a better country, desiring a heavenly one. I can hear Luke saying to Theophilus through this story about Jesus, Theophilus, this is the way. The second would-be disciple coachly had a valid claim in his response to Jesus. 
Instead of initiating discipleship like the first person, this person was the recipient of Jesus' call. Jesus says to him, follow me. I wonder what it would have been like to hear those words. Peter listened to those words and left everything. Matthew heard those words and left all. I'm glad to tell you this morning that we are not at any disadvantage in our place of the story. Jesus is still calling folks to him and people are still leaving all to follow him. This is how you became a Christian. By God's grace, you said yes. This man in the story said, yes, Lord, but I have some business to attend to. You see, this person's father had passed away. He died and it was his responsibility connected with a major cultural responsibility to see that his father was buried. In one light, it might have fallen this, this responsibility to bury his father might even have fallen underneath the outworking of the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. Some rabbinical teaching taught that the, de- that the duty of burying your parents took precedent over everything, including attending religious services and observing study in the law. This was no trivial request that this person put in front of Jesus. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. Jesus' seemingly harsh response might have broken the internet. The Twitter mob would have definitely come for Jesus and, and pounced on him for his insensitivity. In actuality, Jesus' harsh words here was the most needed word for the moment because it laid out what costly discipleship was. Jesus' response, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? Leave the dead to bury the dead. Well, let's get the obvious, the obvious answer out of the way first. This, this can't be literal, right? Literal dead don't bury the dead. They are buried. Maybe the dead that's mentioned here first is the spiritual dead, or perhaps it's rhetorical. One person said that it could be that this is a statement that says, hey, let it take care of yourself. In other words, let the matter take care of the matter. You go out and you proclaim the kingdom of God. Go out and proclaim God's rule and God's reign. Either way around, the point is that Jesus and his call of discipleship supersedes all things, including significant family bonds. On this journey to Jerusalem, you will soon be confronted here in a few short weeks with an astonishing statement of Jesus to his disciples. Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and disciples and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate? Hate. What strong language to show what costly discipleship is. Hate, in this sense, doesn't mean to hate literally, but it means to be such a follower of Jesus, so connected to him, so committed to him, so counting him as your number one priority that all other relationships, even the highest level of the family, looks like hatred. The cost of discipleship is steep because above all things, Jesus is to have a priority of call. He called the disciples to to go and to proclaim Jesus' favorite topic, the kingdom of God. This took precedent as the higher call. Jesus will come in second place to no one. This This is the way. The last individual is like the first in that he initiated the conversation with Jesus. He just didn't take it as far as the other one did by saying, I'll follow you wherever. 
Verse 61 says, I will follow you. His issue, though, was that his discipleship had stipulations attached to it. I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to my family and those who are at home. Let me go home and say goodbye to my mom and say goodbye to my dad. This would-be disciple may have an Old Testament story in mind where this happened before, but Jesus would not have any of it, which leads us to our final, Jesus' final illustration. Jesus said to this person, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Anybody who does this, it's not fit for the kingdom of God. This is an agricultural illustration that we have in front of us, and that would fit right at home with the people of that day. To till the land and to sow the land, a farmer would attach a, a, a plow to an animal, and with one hand, he would hold on to the plow. With another hand, he'd have a prod to make sure that the animal went straight, and the farmer would have a, a mark to look to to keep his eyes focused on straight in front of him to keep the plow straight. If that farmer were to look behind him as the plow was going forward, he would zigzag with his lines, and it would not be a straight line. If he turned back to see his progress, he would lose sight of the target in front of him and produce a less than straight line. I want you to look at how Jesus took an everyday example to illustrate what costly discipleship is. Costly discipleship is a committed discipleship that has its eyes on the coming kingdom and it doesn't look back. Like the children of Israel Look back, that's not what happens with those who put their hands to the plow for the kingdom of God. This is the way. Oh, Theophilus, how Theophilus needed to hear this concerning his assurance. Anyone who tries to be a disciple of Jesus and in double-mindedness double look back to a more carefree times is not fit for the kingdom of God. The disciple of Jesus is like his or her Lord, who set his face towards Jerusalem and did not look back. Single-minded, total response, total commitment is what makes Jesus a, Jesus a follower of Jesus' disciple. This is what makes a disciple fit for the glorious kingdom in the rule of God. This is the way. So in closing, let me reiterate where we've been on this journey here in Luke 9. Luke will spend the next 10 chapters describing what discipleship looks like. We get our first lesson here in hearing about what discipleship is made of. Costly discipleship is preeminently a Christ-centered discipleship, committed discipleship, through the, through the hard road of suffering and rejection, and above all things, followers of Jesus do not look back. Restoration Church, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to keep your hands on the plow, and keep your eyes locked ahead to the coming kingdom and keep plowing ahead as committed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son who gives us an example of what commitment looks like. The one who has gone before us and put his hand to the plow and has made a way forward for the kingdom of God. Would we be as ones who follow our Lord? And would we be as ones who put our hands to the, plow, to the plow and by the power of the Holy Spirit in commitment not look back and so be fit for your glorious kingdom. Grant us much grace in doing so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.